0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com.
2: I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food.
1: I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label?
2: There are some labels that I'd say are so bad, they're good.
1: As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed
2: label. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant at and Enabev Restaurants in Brooklyn, New York. And we're coming to you live from the Heritage Radio Network studio in bushwick brooklyn in the back of robertas did you vote yet please go vote today if you're listening live there's plenty of time before the polls close uh the rain is dying down you should get out there and you should vote today my guest is chef owner greg backstrom he owns the wildly popular olmstead restaurant located in brooklyn he's worked at alinea blue hill per se and overseas in Norway, and he also worked as a private chef before opening his first restaurant in Prospect Heights in spring of 2016. The restaurant has won quite a few awards. It has been named one of Esquire's Best New Restaurants in America, Bon Appetit's 50 Best New Restaurants in America, food and wines 2017 restaurant of the year a new york times 10 best in 2016 and a new york times magazine where to eat in 2017 today we're going to talk about his early career cooking with uh, grant akitz and also dan barber and of course transitioning into leading his own restaurant here in brooklyn greg welcome to the show thanks man so you've had a good couple of years run here at olmstead uh how are you feeling right now about the restaurant does it feel like the restaurant is where you want it to be you're coming up on it's gonna be your three-year anniversary
3: just about yeah yeah.
2: Yeah. so how are you feeling right now
3: uh so i mean grateful first and foremost grateful how everything's played out um it's it's almost been like clockwork like every six months we've like tweaked or evolved the restaurant pretty substantially um since since we've opened just because we took over a pre-existing built restaurant so everything from like the kitchen kind of falling apart and just getting open we you know so what we've done is like when olmstead originally opened it was just a storefront and then a garden in the back now over this like almost three years it's Two storefronts and three gardens in the back. So like we've we've leased more backspace basically, and like getting used to that, and then adding brunch to that, and now we just opened up a private dining room next door to us. Uh, It's just constantly been changing, and I'm kind of excited for it. Like that type of evolution is going to sort of stop now, and we'll just be able to focus on the menu and service.
2: Is the private dining room have the same name, or is it a sort of a separate concept? Is it just the private dining room for large parties through Olmstead? Yeah, it's.
3: it's, uh, I mean, Olmstead is small, so Mm -hmm. like you know, again, it's fifty seats, right? Yeah, like fortunately, it's very popular, but it's also it's a very small restaurant, you know. So uh, it was it's hard to have a large table. Our biggest table. Like uncomfortably sits six six people basically mm-hmm. uh, you know and and wanting to be a a restaurant that's in it for the long haul, we wanted to be able to accommodate more parties and rehearsals and weddings and stuff, so uh our neighbor she went out of business, it was a dry cleaner uh so we we jumped on it. Before we rewind back to your childhood, which is what we usually do at the start, I do
2: want to talk a little bit about that garden because it's such a magnificent feature of the restaurant. Oh, nice. Very lucky that a lot of places... Um, that, that you have that that a lot of places don't have which is this outdoor space which the restaurant flows quite well into it i mm. think some restaurants that do have outdoor spaces you kind of it narrows you walk by the kitchen right. you walk by the bathroom and then oh i'm at there's a backyard right. uh for those that have never been that have never seen pictures can you explain the layout of the restaurant to the garden and also what have you done in the garden that is a little different than just having sure. a backyard patio.
3: Yeah, I mean, we honestly, I didn't, uh, I didn't want what you just described. I didn't want just some tables, some like rickety tables, and some lawn furniture outside. So uh, we started like once I, I had been looking for, to open up a restaurant for, for a long time, and once I sort of narrowed it down to like a few things, uh, really three things. It was like a small bar, uh, a, a dining room, but that that was you know. Manageable for a small kitchen, but still uh, large enough to be like a profitable restaurant. Uh, and then just some type of outside space. And so I didn't want that outside space to just be additional seating because, the, A, the kitchen is very small, but also because it's uh, that, not unique. It's not offering anything different. So when we when we first started building, we started building the garden beds. Uh, so there's two sort of big horseshoe-shaped garden beds that uh, take up most of the, the garden and from there, then we decided how seating was going to work. So that way, it was still substantially a garden for the restaurant and for guests to sort of, I mean, honestly, when we thought about it, we, when we were opening, we thought maybe people would just walk around. And we, we didn't really, weren't really sure if we were going to have people eat and drink out there. But once we sort of just played all these these like scenarios in our head, okay, so if a guest is told that it's a 20-minute wait and they want to wait outside, obviously, you have to let them have something to drink. So then if they're going to drink, if it's Taking too long do they are they going to sit down on the side of the beds? Yes, okay, so now we should build little benches attached to the bed, and it just got because my dad was there building everything, every time we just sort of built a little bit more, we would play out scenarios in our head, and then he would sort of build those uh, adaptations to it
2: what's kind of funny about that being sort of like a wonderful mistake almost that you just kind of worked backwards is is that most people see square footage and they say how can i monetize this how can i pack in 50 tables to the backyard and you actually went in a different direction you you decided that you you started in an aesthetic standpoint almost and said how can this contribute something to the restaurant and then you sort of fit your diners your customers in to that new permutation of what a backyard could be
3: you know it, it has to be a thing you know it's uh it's too competitive of of a of a market to not be trying like not offering something unique like a, a bizarre tasting menu or something but like you know i honestly i don't like using the word experience because i'm trying to make the restaurant more casual more approachable sure. but like offering a different experience you mm-hmm. know uh and that's just, you know, in, in, in our case now, it's just having some s'mores outside uh, or a cocktail or some egg rolls. But, uh, you know, it's it's like for us, we, we try to grow some stuff. We have some quail. We actually just bought some more quail. So now we have like 16 birds. So we really get like more quail eggs than we need. Uh, and, you know, we have a little fish tank with some, uh, like a bathtub with some fish in it. And we when we clean that tub, we spray all the water over the the garden so that way we're sort of doing like a little mini uh aquaponics thing and stuff and we're still trying to figure out how we get a cistern to capture rainwater um
2: it's cool so there are some practical applications back there just
3: beyond it being a feature yeah Yeah. honestly it's it's comes from stuff i like to do and then we try to just make it cute for the guests like just because I care about this stuff doesn't I don't think that the guests have to give a shit about sustainability or whatever, just because I do like they should just be feeling that they're getting something delicious for the money mm-hmm. and uh, Let- and it works out because it's more natural mm-hmm. because it is just like a pretty garden and kid, you know now kids families bring their kids to feed the the birds and the fish now on the weekends and that's stuff, awesome. So.
2: Let's uh, take it all the way back to kids, to your childhood, to growing up um, in the southern part of Illinois. Uh, where did you grow up and uh, what kind of child experience did you have uh, in regards to food? You know, uh, did one or either or any of your parents or grandparents uh, impart any type of love for food on you when you were younger?
3: Uh, so I grew up like a, about an hour south of Chicago and uh, we always we always ate like we always cooked uh at like a as soon as i was old enough to cook uh i i like i always was sort of into it it started with popcorn and melting the butter and being fascinated by the butter melting but uh and then being able to work the grill with my dad um but we always had you know sunday supper and um you know but we were also very active my whole family my sister is a doctor my brother is like uh he works on all these programmings and stuff and Uh, and in high school we, we all did sports and had jobs and stuff. So, uh, we really were just a very active family. So it wasn't like, it was, it just wasn't like a focal point. Like it was almost just like to keep going a little bit, uh, except for on Sundays when we had like a proper, proper meal. But we, uh, I really started to get into it from the Boy Scouts. So like in the Boy Scouts and a lot like in the restaurant world, once you're, taught a skill you're just expected to then do it and no one will help you do that skill anymore so that whether that's setting up your tent or being able to carry your own canoe or whatever start a fire uh just once you're checked off the box that you can do it just a, an adult will not do it for you anymore and it's a lot like that in restaurants once you've learned a sauce like then you're now that's your sauce now you make that here's
2: your mise en place badge yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly you're I mean, on, I have you're my on your own badge so. <laughs> you're on your own yeah yeah and so the Boy Scouts, uh, it teaches you a certain level of organization, some precision. Just like uh, steps of doing of setting up a tent mirrors things later on in life, which is why well, Boy Scouts are an effective teaching tool. So, so you take that from your from your they, young age, and yeah, yeah.
3: Well, not to cut you off, but they also one of those skills is cooking. Mm. So, like once eventually when you're camping, so I really liked it because I would my my brother and my father we in the boy scouts you'd go camping once a month and then in the summer we would go for like months on end sometimes uh like up in canada but so like once once you're old enough then your parents don't make the food anymore for you and you're expected to make it for your little group of friends and you know as you're getting more competitive and older and more competitive you don't want like your beef stew to be the shitty beef stew that that weekend you know yeah and or at least i didn't and so uh so i just really got into it and i started doing a little Boy Scout cooking competitions at summer camp and stuff. And uh,
2: and and when did it really become something that was solidifying in your brain where you thought, hmm, maybe this is what I want to do with my life? Because you did end up going to culinary school. Yeah, was yeah. there a moment in which you said to your parents in mid high school, I think that this is what I really was born to do or what I'm going to pursue? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I remember getting Jamie Oliver's first cookbook from my aunt. And like, I, honestly, there's still like one of the first pages is just mirepoix like in a cast iron pot and i just like was like attracted to that mm-hmm. um so one summer before so i would always i would like practice uh and even then i remember like making a pasta dough in high school i, w- I started making dinner and like setting the table like operating it like my little restaurant uh but uh, like i remember making pasta one time and thinking if I whipped the egg whites for the dough, that that would make the pasta dough lighter. And so I just had like this weird thing that I was like cranking through like my little crappy pasta crank machine. Uh, And then all the pasta just floated to the top because of (laughs) all the egg whites to it. Uh, I'm pretty sure I still served it. But uh, yeah, sometime towards the end of high school, uh, I I did try to get a job at like like a country club. My first first job really was uh, Wendy's. But uh, then I got into like a country club where we – we did some basic stuff, uh, and then I did a camp. I did like a cooking camp uh, that ended up being my culinary school the year like a year after that.
2: So, talk a little bit about that. How did you end up? Uh, you went in Evanston. Yeah, right? yeah. And
3: so, yeah, I went to culinary school. It was in Evanston, LA. They they didn't move into the city, uh, into Chicago after after like a couple, like after like a year of me being there, they moved the whole school. And how many years was that program? Was I did it- a two year one. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, I don't know. I I never was. Uh, no one convinced me that the four year program was worth it. Uh-huh. N- not to shit talk about anything, but uh, and I and I don't I don't regret it because I really took culinary school uh, like super seriously. I was the guy watching Emeril on my bed when everyone else was getting drunk, like tournading potatoes and like reading the French Laundry cookbook at the same time, trying to absorb. Like I have I still have my flashcards from all of my like mother sauces and all the derivatives. Because I just wanted to know them all, you know. Is it a true story that you got the job at Alinea relative
2: to a research project you were doing for school? Like, you you sort of backdoored it, right? You went to
3: go observe and then... Straight naive. I mean... So, tell us about that. Well, back then, there was only eGullet. That was the only, like, form of... uh, like food uh, internet, at least that's what I remember. Like there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't any of that stuff. And so on there, on Igual, it was like this exciting... You're really dating yourself. People are like, what is what is but that?" Was a, about? That was 2005, you know? It was before the internet. Basically. I mean, <laughs> I remember. I don't remember looking up restaurants on, online. And stuff. I, I remember reme- having to get, buy the cookbook you if I wanted... You couldn't Google
2: recipes. It yeah. wasn't a thing. Yeah. 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 It's kind of shocking that people still... Buy cookbooks considering but totally anyways go, go ahead so you are working on this project yeah so it's like
3: schools wrapping up and the last thing is like the last like uh, class is basically design a restaurant in and, and from scratch sort of a thing uh, and so I knew I wanted a tasting menu restaurant I saw all the pictures on yougullet that he was uh, grant was like fooling around with at Nicokonis's house and he was putting up pictures and stuff building like anticipation and so uh, I call like the week they opened and asked if I could come in and talk to the chef like I, I didn't even know who Chef Atkins was at that time uh, and so I showed up and then basically I was just there for a 15 hour stage and uh, at the end of it I, you know I didn't I, didn't, I was too afraid to ask any questions what's, they just told me to start doing stuff and I started doing it um, and at the end of it Chef Hackett's came up to me and said so what's your deal and I was like uh, I just I just probably was rambling saying Yeah, chef and uh, and he said, well, do you need to do your internship? And I was like, "Yeah, chef. Uh, although I didn't. I had already done two other ones, one in France and one at a bakery. Uh, but I just kind of went with it. And so I just I switched school to part-time. So that way I can then start my day at at Alenia. Then during staff meal, I would go do a class, that two-hour class, and then I would come back for service. And uh, I did that for just like an arbitrary, like five month internship that wasn't equated to anything. Uh, And then at the end of that, uh, he offered me a job and was very complimentary of my work ethic. And uh, I remember skipping home at like three o'clock in the morning that day. uh, And I called my mom and woke her up because I was so excited that he actually offered me a job. Prior to it opening, like when you were reading about um, him working on the, the recipes
2: in Nick Conus's apartment, who's the co-owner of yeah. Alinea, and they've obviously gone on to do amazing things there, did you? Did everyone know? Like, were people talking about, there's this guy, Grant Akins, he's doing things that are, like, off the wall, and this is going to be the next thing? Or did you kind of see it before it was materializing? For,
3: for me, I don't think I s- what attracted I, I you wanted, to it? That's what I thought it was going to be like everywhere I went. I like being like I. Uh, what I loved was I was in a room full of people that all were as passionate about what they did as as equally as I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people from around the world would come and stage. And I'm still friends with people that I met for three days that came to Elenia because they're we're just like minded people. It's like when I went to, uh, when I moved to Spain to work at Mugaritz, like. I was living in a, an apartment building with a three bedroom apartment with a, like four sets of bunk beds in each room and 20 of us were just crammed in their living. And like you don't you can't have that experience and not be like a, you know, a wiser and more worldly open minded human after, you, you know, none of us even lived in the same country. And, I mean, you spend a couple days, 15-hour days with people. You get tight real quick. It yeah.
2: pushes everyone to the limits quite a lot. Uh, I want to ask you more questions about Alinea, but I also yeah. want to ask you about those other uh, overseas trips. So mm-hmm. you were um, a little out of order, but you were in at Mugaritz. You were in uh, Norway, yep. and you were also uh, at, a, at a bakery.
3: Yeah, okay, so my, so my background do is... Do this timeline right, for us. Set so, us up. After Wendy's, we'll, we'll start. We'll start at Elenia uh, So I, I worked at Elenia for almost the first four years that it was open, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I like uh, I cannot say enough good things about my experience there. Chef Hackett's is still like uh, very much a part of uh, you know. I reach out to him every time I need advice, um, but I I mean when I put in my notice. I I honestly I said I don't know if our trash cans are the cleanest trash cans or if like our ice cream is the best ice cream. I just I don't have anything to compare it to. I'm just I've just been here for the last four years, mm-hmm. and uh, so he agreed that it was time for me to go, and uh, so we, I, he helped me set up basically about six months in Spain where I did like a week or so at, at El Bui, a week or so at Arzac, and then three months at Mugretes. Uh, and then from there, I moved to New York to work at Per Se for, uh, I, I planned on working at Per Se for years. Uh, but while I was there, um, again, Chef Hackett's, after about me being there for about a year and a half or so at Per Se, he was eating at Blue Out Stone Barns and my name came up. So Dan Barber reached out and offered me the chef position. Uh, and so I did that for two years. Then I moved to, then I helped open up North End Grill and Atera for about six months and six months and then I I wanted to see a Danny Meyer operation and Mm -hmm. uh, and I know Matt Matt was one of the Matt Leitner from Matera he was one of the only Americans at Mugreitz at the time so we we met there and then I moved to Norway for about six months five months and then uh, then I personal chefed for the Seinfelds for about two years
2: right and so cool now that we've established that timeline let's go back to (laughs) Grant Ackett's and and ask about that Alinea Kitchen for those of us that will never be you know, fortunate enough to eat there and, and walk through that kitchen, what is that like being there for four years amongst all that creativity and also just the pursuit of excellence there is really all, nearly unmatched? There's a couple other places mm-hmm. that, that can play in that same level, but you were there for four years. Um, tell us what it's like to be in that proximity to what they do at Alinea and what you did there with him.
3: I mean, i not uh, like on top of that, it was also its first four years, you know? And right. so like, um, not that it's, you know, diminished at all, but when I was there, I was there with Jordan Kahn of Vespertine, Alex Dupak of Empayone, Curtis Duffy, John Shields, uh, Josh from Best Ed, Like everybody I worked with now has a very successful restaurant somewhere. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, that happens to, like, the French Laundry in its first five years. And, like, it's, uh, and I'm sure the people now that are learning it will go off and do amazing things, too. But, uh, like, back then there was only, like, 12 of us total counting Grant and the sous chefs. Now there's, like, 20-something. So it was, like, new and Grant was very protective of it. And there was, it was even more intimate because there was just even fewer of us and uh like it, it used to be so quiet that like you could hear the fan running on the inductions like across the room because you just didn't talk unless you had to i remember grant one time was so sick of 20, you know 15 people saying behind behind all the time that we were we stopped saying behind and you were just expected to know where everyone was and if you were walking past someone you just brushed brushed their like with the back of your you brushed your back their back with the back of your finger like awareness was super super high you know
2: that that is actually to people who just work in let's just call them normal kitchens for lack of a better term yeah that seems so insane since one of the first things that you hear in a kitchen is communicate like tell me where you're at on this dish where are you at on prep like do you need assistance like did that produce order come in it's all like talking 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 and yet what you what what you're saying now is that you just had to be playing at a higher level. You had to be functioning at a different sort of plane yeah, I <laughs> of mean, existence. Who was in, in the that Who kitchen. was
3: around you? You mm-hmm. know what? Uh, you and, know, if we were low on something, you just uh, yeah. I mean, you just had he just the expectation was so high. And what was like awesome for me was uh, so like when I started there, I was at, I was a free intern, and uh, like a week into it, uh, the the I was the lowest of the low. There were three interns and I was the last one that was hired and I was on Garmage, cold Garmage, and that guy quit the guy said it this wasn't for me even though he worked at trio and everything um just too much and so um grant came up to me and was like either I hire someone or you run with the opportunity and so uh that was like my first in and then after I worked that station for a while uh I got moved over To like assisting the meat station and then working the meat station, and every pretty much every section has their own chef or sous chef that they pass all their mise en place to. Like you just cook if you're the cook, and then the sous chefs plate everything. Uh, At least that's how it was back then. And for like a huge chunk of that time, the person I passed everything to was Grant. So like if it wasn't perfect, like I could tell by the way he held his spoon, by the way he tapped on the pass the way he would lean, like, I could just read him, like, a book to where, like, if I put something there, like, just how, it, if he blinked a certain way, I would just take it back and throw it away and do it again, like... Uh, it sounds brutal, but it sounds like a good training ground to what comes next. Yeah, but he, it was brutal, but, like, he's not the type of guy uh that, like, creates, like, there are chefs that create chaos because they like that type of environment. Mm-hmm. For him, it's just, like... The expectation is high, and and it's consistent. Like a lot of chefs, like uh, they like the energy of a, a chaotic kitchen. They still want the food to be great and everything, but they they sort of like to stir the pot. They like to cause, uh, you know, people to argue, and they like to you know fuck with people basically. And you know, Grant wasn't like that. It was like it's nice to be able to lean on. Like he just wants it to be perfect, and like none of it's personal. You know, and so if he's telling you it's wrong, it's just wrong.
2: Before we take a break, I wanna ask you about another chef who's in pursuit of perfection that you worked for, Dan Barber. Yeah. Uh talk a little bit about Chef Barber. Uh you can obviously speak to them as being very different people, but one of the fundamental differences from my very outside perspective, having never had the ability to eat at each restaurant, is that um I don't think Dan Barber would ever serve a balloon that has flavor inside of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if Grant Ackett's would ever just put a singular carrot down on
3: the table that's been just roasted. Right, right, right. Does that
2: feel correct to you in some sort of way? Honestly,
3: that was like the draw to it. Like, uh, I loved, excuse me, I loved per se, but, you know, I I knew how to act it. I knew how to, to, to excel at per se because Grant came from Thomas Keller. And so I, it was, although the food is very different, the mindset and everything else was very much the same. And so when the opportunity to work for Dan Barber came up, I jumped at it because I do, like, I, it's not that per se, and Alenia don't uh, source amazing sustainable products and everything. It's just that, like, he just came from a different, he came from a Boulay. Like, Boulay has his own proteges, Cesar Ramirez and and everybody else, you know. So, uh like, to be able to, like, I remember, I remember Dan Barber once coming up to me uh, and, like, talking about his Hakurai turnips like Eli, at, per se, would talk about the caviar. Like, just, like, such passion for freaking turnip, you know? Uh, and so, I really, you know, in the beginning, I really struggled because, uh you know, I just came from, like, a very regimented background. Like, I remember Dan... Uh, you know rightfully so it told me it was like look i'm afraid to take a week off because I, you'll have this place run like a military by the time i get back uh and uh you know it, it, in hindsight i did uh i didn't appreciate it as much while i was there i i really just was like my role is to create Order and consistency. So I did not walk around the farm as much as I probably should have and engaged with the farmers and stuff. Like I just was like, this is my post and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like it's not, the kitchen, this is, this the kitchen romantic, was your room. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. like for me, I, in all of my jobs, like I don't, I have never, I never tried to give Dan a dish that I had been working on or Grant or anybody. Like for me, it was like for me to excel at. At my current job is to like give to think like Grant and give him what he needs or wants. So like if he liked certain ingredients and certain things, then I would like propose those things. I didn't like well. This is what I think, you know. Like mm-hmm. that's not. I don't feel like that. That's what I was getting paid for. I'm not getting paid to like change Blue Hill at Stone Barns. I'm there to assist Dan Barber, and uh, I don't know. I still think that. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to
2: actually start talking about you and a couple dishes that that you've created. Okay. We'll be right back. (laughs) Stick with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. From the Next time you
0: step up for the intention, remember most the great distinction.
2: Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm joined today by Chef Greg Backstrom, the owner and chef of Olmstead, located in Prospect Heights. It opened in 2016 uh, to critical acclaim, and uh, they've been really... Uh, move in ever since, uh, garnering lots of wonderful awards. But before we start talking about Olmstead, we before before the break, we were talking about two chefs that had a lot of impact on him. And Greg, you said that at both of those restaurants, working for Grant Ackett's at Alinea, working for Dan Barber, that you never felt that it was your role to really uh, innovate new dishes. You were there to kind of execute their vision. When did you, when did you start to really feel like you had something that you wanted to say independent of those restaurants? When did the idea come into form to work on opening your own place?
3: I mean, like I, even when I was a line cook at Alinea, like the goal was even at Wendy's, like the goal was (laughs) always to open up my own restaurant. Yeah. Um, after Stone Barns, and um, honestly, when I was when I was at uh, when I was at my friend's restaurant in Norway, um, you know, he had uh, like some weird cooking equipment. Sorry, Chris, but uh, he had like a weird Chinese flat top stove, and it was really crummy. And uh, he has since like remodeled his whole kitchen, and it's gorgeous. But uh, I don't know. There was a point where it clicked, and I was like, okay, well, you can you know how to cook. So, what do you do now? And like that was a big part of why I left uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barns was because you know like when you're working all these hours, even you know you need investors, you need people with money basically to have confidence in you. And although a lot of these people have money that are dining at these restaurants, you're not interacting with them. You know? so they don't
2: necessarily even know who you are. Yeah, really, yeah. Yeah.
3: So like at some point, you have to just step out of that. And so that's what I did, and that's when I started to like bounce around a lot and then doing the personal chefing thing, because then I could cook for more people, I could meet more people, do tastings, that kind of stuff. Um, Was the private chef gig, uh,
2: how did that come to be? And from a financial standpoint, was that also about you doing some fundraising on your own? Like, look, I'll save up a little bit of money, or was it really more for the networking?
3: I mean, you would have to do it for years and years to really put a dent into being able to help pay for your own restaurant you know yeah um so i mean it came to where like i didn't have basically i did a dinner for the seinfelds and they reached out after i did it uh and they were like look we could get whatever you know you can get a job wherever you with your resume and and we can hire anyone we want you know why don't we' we'll, we'll just not put a time there's no time commitment and uh we'll just keep it open and honest and i just stuck around for two years and uh,
2: so did you do a lot of
3: Large-scale private dinners for
2: them, or were you mostly cooking just for them in their home?
3: Both. I mean, I would, you know, I would, I would cook for them for their family. They have, they have three kids, and uh, and they like Marvel comics and stuff, so that we got along pretty well. Uh-huh. Um, and then they would have, you know, they would entertain me, you know. So then I would, they would sort of keep it casual and simple for those meals, and then you know they would let me do my thing when they would invite friends over.
2: And so, how did you end up fundraising for the restaurant? you obviously, you had, you had a network, yep. you had chefs that you worked for, yep. you had the resume, mm-hmm. uh, when you really just drill down into it, did you put a deck together? Did you do tasting dinners that had any dishes that remotely resemble Olmstead? Like, how did it, how did you actually go
3: out there and get it done? I mean, I, so uh, honestly, I, I, it fell through like 20 times. Like I, I almost did something with the, the Nakazawa guy and, uh, you know, all these different people and in, the, in do, doing a tasting uh, and and like in those tastings you're sort of or I was at least like catering to them a little bit and to like the space that they had found already so like if it looked more fine dining then I was like okay well, let's do a tasting menu restaurant here and, and you know etc. But so when it came down to Olmstead basically these people reached out through LinkedIn want, needing a consultant because the restaurant wasn't doing well and again I had I had like, one of the first things you have to do once you're not in a kitchen anymore is you have to, you have to hire a lawyer basically, and uh, otherwise you just keep making the same mistake like I did, and it took a long time for me to eventually realize that. But like you need you need guidance as to like what is your worth, How, what do you ask for? Like I have that with the chefs and stuff, like, like with Chef Hackett and Dan Barber and them, but uh, eventually you need like paid legal advice. So um, by the time I got to to Olmstead. Um, I met these really lovely people. Their restaurant wasn't wasn't working out. Um they they wanted me to just to fix it and then like in the same in our first meeting they were just like, "Well, what if we just start over?" And at that point I had done that conversation enough times where I, I was just like, "Well, this is what I would need and it would just be total control of this, you know, about 50% of that. This is what I want. I want control over these things." Uh and they were like, Okay, well, let's do a tasting, and if it goes well, then we're on board, and that's what I did.
2: So, do you have pretty much the final say on everything at this point with Homestead? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, are you now the sole proprietor of the
3: restaurant? Well, we have investors, and, and I have I have two partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is Max, the general manager, and mm-hmm. he he's he's now a partner in the restaurant. Uh, and then we have some small investors and whatnot. But uh, but yeah, I mean, fortunately, it's I mean, it's like. It's I have so many French chef friends that like think that they're the their owner or th- think that they're the chef or or th- their their partners tell them that they're the chef owner, and there's nothing on paper you know like i've uh, I made sure that i'm that I'm you in were, that you yeah. were protected yeah how
2: would you describe Olmstead as a restaurant? It has been described in many different permutations with often the word neighborhood involved yeah, in some yeah. way. How would you
3: describe Olmstead? Well, that was my idea. <laughs> and, uh, it's funny when people, people ask like me to elaborate on that. And then I really don't know what to say. <laughs> I, I, no, here's an actual tangent side joke. So we got prank called once and the kid was asking like, so what kind of food do you serve there? Blah, blah, blah. And what kind of restaurant it? And they said, the, 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 uh, whoever picked up the phone, uh, replied with, I think it was Catherine. Um, you know, we're a neighborhood restaurant, and the kid was just like, "What the hell does that even mean?" <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment, I kind of stopped using it. Uh-huh. But, uh, but honestly, it it's just like another word for approachable is what I I mean. The best description I've ever received uh, was, and I unfortunately I don't remember who told me this, but it's if Alenia and Blue House Stone Barn had a casual baby, like I think that really sums up what we're trying to do. Like the food is playful, inventive. Hopefully, people think that uh, and, and delicious. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a great way of
2: putting it because it seems to be a distillation of a lot of things that you've taken from various places and you've taken flavors and plating and everyone knows that you could have done a $275 tasting menu. Mm. To me, that seems like it could have been an obvious direction for you based on your resume, but you don't have anything on the menu that's more than $24, which is, uh, I think that's surprising to people that um, a restaurant in New York that's run by a chef who has worked at these places opens up a spot and says, yeah, no entrees above $24. Was that – why is that? And um, as things get more expensive and labor goes up and everything like that, like is there a time when Olmstead might have a $38 X on the menu or do you just not want to go in that direction? No,
3: I mean I'm I'm not going to jeopardize – we have, we have 50 employees now if, mm-hmm. if we if we get to a point where things become more expensive then of course we're, we're gonna we'll, I mean we're not going to just start tripling our prices or something like that but right like we're a ti- we are a tiny neighborhood restaurant mm-hmm. that should probably have like 12 employees but we have 50 um, and why do you have
2: 50 employees
3: because a, a, because we want although like the music is loud and it's crowded and whatnot there's uh, usually like five to seven people on the floor for that tiny restaurant-hmm uh, there's two people behind the bar, and uh, you know we we you know we want to use nice plates, and we want the service. Although there's not like some psalm standing down, you know, making you feel like you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we still have great wine service. You have a wine director. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, we have. I mean, we just uh, we just uh, brought on a pastry chef, uh, and like that is because some of these things we're trying to build a stronger foundation so we can build another restaurant and maybe a bakery someday, and yada yada yada. But like. Yeah, I just want it to be good, and so um, as long as like, as long as we can stay busy and keep hopefully exceeding people's expectations, then like, then we don't then then the prices aren't going to go up, you know. Can you talk? Because of- we're busy, and <laughs> so that fixes that problem, you know. Like, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to have a fucking expensive tasting menu restaurant uh, and get my two Michelin stars and close it three or four years into it. Like, I would hate that. Like, I would much rather have what I have right now. Can you take us through the conceptualization of dishes?
2: You have a lot of flavor yeah. profiles going on. Um, I think what's really cool about the restaurant is that uh, even though we did just kind of unfortunately categorize it and box it in as a neighborhood restaurant, yeah. it does defy that based on the flavors that mm. hit your table. Um You have pierogies, spetzel, crepes. Uh, I I have seen Thai inspired dishes. I've seen Chinese inspired dishes. Where do you start from? And then how does it end up becoming a dish that makes it on the menu?
3: Basically, like, so like, I need to work into a box. Although the menu does not seem like it's in a box, Mm -hmm. everything is coming from the farmer's market like if we're not growing it in the garden or like getting it sourced from Montauk you know it's it's coming from Union Square Farmers Market if not or Grand Army Plaza and so at, even if it's thai inspired or chinese or pierogies like the pierogies are sweet potatoes that we buy from the farmers market and and we want to still find ways to use luxury ingredients so uni so it's main uni but a tray of uni is fifty dollars. But if you buy the ones that are that get broken when they're being shucked because these people are shucking a ton of them and they don't all come out perfect, it's, tw- it's half it's twenty five dollars. So how do how can I serve sea urchin in a restaurant? even the twenty five dollar one would st- I would still have to charge too much for it. Like it would be like either like something that's a one biter that is expensive still that doesn't equate to like our pricing structure or I turn that into a filling. And put it into something nice. So we make like a really, one of our cooks had a really amazing pierogi dough recipe. So we made it and we fooled around with a couple of different fillings. And uh, so now we have uni sweet potato pierogies, like a classic uh, combo is, is uh, butternut squash and uni for, for pasta. A lot of chefs like to do that. John George and Dan Barber both like that, that combo. And, uh, you know, with pierogies being potatoes, it just was sort of like a natural fit. And then on top of that, we still make them we make at least like 10 orders without any of the uni so that way a guest can still order just a vegetarian pierogi if they want to so like we try like the even the carrot this carrot crepe thing that we make like you could get that vegetarian gluten-free or regular like we we really try to accommodate everything as much as we possibly can do you do that because of is that is that your personal
2: desire to be open like that? Or do you just feel like because of the vibe of the restaurant that you want all those permutations so that people can come in and ha- they can make a meal however they
3: see fit? Yeah, I mean, I just want people to be comfortable and like it, you mm-hmm. know? And so if that, like, yes, it's annoying to, to like, put something on the menu and then the next day, like, have to have, like, okay, oh, yeah, well, we should have had a vegetarian version of that and we should have done this and we should, like... If, vet, if someone doesn't want seafood, but we can make something delicious with the, the same flavor profile, it's not that big of an inconvenience, you know? And and I'm just not that guy that's like, uh, this is my creation. You have to eat it this way. Like, it's still food. As And they're still giving me their money. So, like, again, I want... A, I want it just seems like the more you try to cater to the guests and not yourself the busier the restaurant is and then the more like at the end of the day i still get to put whatever the hell i want on the menu there's there still is some weird crab rangoon thing and some sushi thing and some pasta that's not pasta and a pork dish that's you know so well you say it because it's your it's you
2: know it's the way you feel and it's obvious but it a lot of chefs just don't go in that direction they yeah. just they go in the exact opposite direction um and so as uh a chef and the owner, you Mm -hmm. are also, you know, there's, there is the creativity, there is the hospitality, but there's also like the bottom line. So how much right now time, how are you dividing your time between things that are directly correlated to service, hospitality, food creation, and Mm -hmm. how much of your time do you spend doing all that other stuff sitting at a computer uh, yeah. Pricing guides, documentation, things like that.
3: Well, I I have to tell you, I got it pretty good because uh, my partner Max, uh, he is. We met at Stone Barns, um, uh, so I have two primary partners, Mike Kennedy and, and Max Katzenberg. And uh, Max and I met when he he, he was a captain at Blue Hole Stone Barns, and uh, I don't know. We always sort of just stayed in touch after we moved on, and uh, he overseas service the front of the house end of service uh but because there's also a wine director and like a and bar and stuff like that like it doesn't force him to spend all of his time there and then so he's able to uh deal with all that kind of stuff with all the all the stuff i don't want to do basically so uh i'm very grateful for that for him can you talk about it keeps my job super romantic i mean i'm like i still work all the time We're, we're gonna open up another restaurant next year uh but, yeah, people, but I still I mean, get to
2: you, do You're still in the kitchen People still see you expoing
3: I've. Oh, I've
2: yeah. seen, people are like The chef is here It's like yeah It's his restaurant well, I,
3: I mean I used to live Across the street I moved like a few Blocks further away Just to have some Good
2: way to create Some separation for yourself Yeah it
3: was getting A little <laughs> awkward When I would like Buy a frozen pizza And like my sous chef Would be in the next line Like buying chives Or something like that You know And yeah. I was like Trying not to come in that day It was your and, day off And you yeah. were just gonna go home You and like, know I have like A know, six pack of Stella And a, <laughs> and a cheap frozen pizza
2: uh can you talk about the new restaurant at all what might it be like what are you trying to to do with the new space i can't
3: can't really go into too much just because it's a little too far out Mm -hmm. but basically uh someday i do want to do fine dining again Mm -hmm. and uh but i want to you know i want uh i want a foundation you know before so that way i can like I said, that's why we have a pastry chef now, and why we're you know when we opened, we only had sixty bottles under of wine under like sixty bucks or something like that, and now we're at like one fifty or something. Um, but the new restaurant is going to be an- another stab at even more approachable, uh, with a, like a lot of French influence. But I want it to be even more affordable than Olmsted.
2: Even so, the price point
3: it's will gonna be, be lower. lower. Yeah, and then you know. After I've after we've done that, and hopefully a bakery sometime in the next like sixteen months, eighteen months, uh, then I would hope, you know, don't quote me on that, but like to try to do a fine dining restaurant.
2: So at a at a lower price point, how do you achieve
3: that? I got a, I got a whole plan for it but <laughs> I'm not ready to announce. <laughs> that you're yet. not
0: ready to share. Yeah. yeah.
3: But uh, but I really think uh, I really do think it'll work, and it's gonna be like I still get to. Get the same great scallops that we use and serve them in this price point in this like idea that I basically I think it, it's a little bit of a weird thing that doesn't exist. So okay, um,
2: well look, I don't uh, uh, when when you are ready to talk yeah. about it, come yeah, back yeah, and yeah, we'll yeah, talk definitely. about it. For sure, it sounds like it's a whole new concept that diverges from both fine dining and from old yeah. to a
3: certain degree. Like the, the idea, like I won't be able to work. I won't at least. I mean, maybe. Twenty years from now, you can if I'm trying to sell out and make more money or something. But at this point, I don't really care about money. So, uh, I w- I want another restaurant to in it. Like, almost that is still a thing for some people. Like it's still an event. It's like it's a two month waiting list. It's a, uh, it's like it's a little obnoxious uh, in my opinion. And so, you know, I w- I want the next one to not feel that way. Like I want it to be a little bit more. Uh, let's just go, like Roberta's. You know, I want it to be a little bit more. Like, hey, let's just go.
2: When you come into the restaurant now and you've got a couple years under your belt, uh what are the things that make you the most excited about coming to work every single day and are still fueling you? And is there one or two things that are on your chef-owner list that you are still uh scared and worried about?
3: Um... Well, I'll start with the second one. That like, st- staffing is still like the hardest thing, by far. Like, uh, you know, I you know, I don't I don't know if it's generational or whatever. You know, I'm not gonna shit talk a generation people. You know, but uh, it's it's uh, you know, for me, it was just it's just never has been, and it probably never will be about salary or time. Like, I just knew that I wanted to be a chef. And then I knew that well, if I'm not the strongest one in the kitchen in the kitchen that I'm working at at that time, then how will I ever meet my goals? And like that is that's just like how I approached the last 15 years basically. And uh, it, it's I can't even say that that is the right way to do it because you know relationships fall to the side. I've been you know I used to be married. Uh, and so, like, I can't really advocate that other people should do that. Um, but career-wise, at least I have what I was shooting for, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I just love I just love the restaurant. Like, I, I really do, like, even if I take a day off, I still find myself wandering around in the garden or something. Um, I love sh- taking friends from out of town, you know, that I haven't seen it yet and showing them. I like playing around with this like this, like all the, the menu changes so often that we, there's a really nice balance in my opinion of like dishes that we keep bringing back. Like the pierogies change out for the crab rangoon. And then there are, you know, cause we ha- it's like a grid. We have a grid of, okay, it's a veggie. We have, there's three sections plus desserts. So there's five items in each section. Right. And so in it, it there's one meat, two veg, two seafood. And like that way we're just accommodating more, people again like it's so that way it's intentional that like a pescatarian can easily eat here um and so i like that there's like it's a little bit less daunting looking at the menu having to completely change it again because we have some the rutabaga pasta comes back and so that's a little less pressure but so now i can focus on the new pork dish or something um that's starting to become uh a lot nicer it doesn't feel so much like like i'm sprinting anymore you know, I feel more in control. Let's talk about that control and leadership style, and
2: and leading a kitchen. You've obviously led other kitchens before. Mm-hmm. Uh, is running and and leading Olmstead is it more freeing of an experience than your previous uh, kitchen leadership positions, or is it actually uh, more difficult from from the position of being the one at the top?
3: It's more difficult. I mean, it's. Uh... for the same, uh, it's more difficult because in the other restaurants, it was, it was just black and white, everything. And, um, you know, that's not how I want to be. Like I, I I was such an asshole as the, the chef at stone barns. Like, uh, and I don't, I don't scream or yell. Of course, when the restaurant opened, I was like super, uh, insane, but, uh, I really don't try to yell. I really, uh, I'm not the best communicator and I'm trying to get better at that. And on top of that, like I don't want the culture just to come from me because my, my culture is less relatable. And so giving the opportunity for the sous chefs and the other management for them to kind of uh, sort of be taught by me on how, like what the expectations are and then them become leaders because uh, I, I don't know, I found this, Myself, every time a cook would quit or something, uh, our old chef de cuisine, like I would just put her back on the line, and then she would just be a line cook again until we fixed the problem. And like that financially makes the most sense, and you know everything. But it was hard for her to then like have an authority of like this is my this is my post, do what I say. If like every ten weeks she got put back on the line, um, and so it's a learning curve. It really is like. I you know I don't just scream and say why the fuck did you do this throw this away that guy's going to quit and then it's going to fuck up my food cost you know so like again like it's finding a balance of uh being more human and b- being responsible for my business um and and trying to figure out what people want now when we when we opened uh all the cooks had to work like 70 hours a week uh and this is not something to brag about like honestly like every 12 weeks for the first 2 years we were open someone quit like it was a nightmare um it didn't matter that chef Atkins was coming in we were getting all this, it was just too much work and it had nothing to do with pay we we paid f- great uh but eventually i i, got a, I and I, I refused to change it I, I i wanted it to be that way i wanted it to be the restaurant that paid well and what's all dedicate our lives to this uh and w- once we've switched to uh, 50 hours a week, everyone stopped quitting. Like it, it really was, uh, about the, the amount of labor, like about the hours. Um, and now it's like, it's substantially healthier and we have more support in like the morning team. You know, before before we opened, we had like four, me and three other cooks. Now there's like t- 10 or 12 of us. It's, I mean, it's obviously that's
2: one of the most important things to try to find that, that balance there. Yeah. And, uh, and growing and learning as things go on. Uh, I'm excited to hear about the new project whenever you can come back. We want to hear about it. Uh, and for the time being, uh, where can people find you, uh, at Olmstead, uh, please give us the address and when you're open.
3: Yeah. I mean, we're open. So so Olmstead is a, a seven day a week restaurant. We still the, the per se schedule. So we, we do lunch Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then dinner, uh, every day of the week. And then we just opened up this new PDR, uh, And it's, it's my, my dad built it himself. It's super pretty. Uh, So definitely come by and check it out. What's the address? 659 Vanderbilt Avenue.
2: Cool. Chef, thanks so much for being here and uh, talking more about your story and how you got uh, to where you are today. Yeah, man. Thanks for letting me ramble around. (laughs) Join us here every week, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. for new episodes of The Line on Heritage Radio.